But first up, delighted to welcome Roger Varian to the show. We've spoken uh, across the airwaves many times on Luck on Sunday, but never have I had the pleasure of getting him here in person. Such are the demands uh, on a man with hundreds of horses and, more importantly, three children on a Sunday. Happy Easter, Roger. Yeah, happy Easter to you, Nick. Good to be here. And there is a, a genuine reason why I've managed to secure you this Sunday, isn't there? Well, it, it works early in the season, doesn't it? We're not as uh, frenetic as we are in the summer. And Hanako and the kids are all in Japan, so no family commitments that, today. That is the real reason, isn't it? Yeah. How do you find balancing that? Clearly, we're all people with busy lives, busy family lives, but for someone who has to be supervising that many horses, being all over the world and raising a young family in, in Newmarket, how do, you, how do you cope with that? Um, Pretty well by the looks of it. Yeah, look, it, it presents uh, challenges. You know, training horses is a 24-7 you know, occupation, very much a lifestyle. But, um, you know, I compare how things have been over the last 10 years, having children to some of my friends who might not work in racing, might work in the city. Mm -hmm. And they might work Monday to Friday, get up before the kids are up, return home after the kids have gone to bed, see none of them at all through the week, and then, you know, really have to commit weekends to them. I'm very lucky, you know, we're, we're local, we're a new market, you know, we live practically on site. Yes, we work very hard, we work all day, we work early mornings, we work late nights, but I can dip in and out of a house, I can dip in and out of their lives, and, you know, really, I, I see them every day, even if it's just for short moments, and, you know, I, I try not to, to miss bedtime, and, you know, so, yes, we're busy, but I find, um, I find there's lots of opportunity to get to... You know, little, little moments with the kids most days. Are you someone who's quite good at compartmentalising? At sort of separating and you know, apportioning little bits of, of family time and being able to, to, to concentrate 100% on the training when you need to? I think so, yeah. Um, always try to keep things real. And, uh, you know, the kids are a great uh, asset, really, in, in keeping everything in perspective. I can go home and switch off pretty quick. You know, I, I generally don't take uh, take things home with me. Um, there's moments uh, in training racehorse when you can't have the kids around um, at the races, you know, big races, when, when there's pressure on results. You know, it's very hard for you to, to, to manage your, your own expectations, mm -hmm. other people's expectations around you, um, deal with your own disappointment and maybe upset, and at the same time, play father. So, you know... At certain times, you know, you struggle to, to do everything at the same time. But um, in the right moments, I can, I can switch off very quickly. If I'd asked you 15 years ago, for example, um, where you would be now, what do you think you would have said then? What did you want then? I, I would have probably said, maybe not with a heap of confidence, but I would have said to be somewhere similar to where I am now. Yeah. You know, I was hugely ambitious as a, as a youngster. And when I was assistant trainer, you know, with the ambition to be a trainer, I wasn't, I didn't have an ambition just to train horses. You know, I wanted to train horses um, to a higher level as possible, as many as I could, and, uh, you, know, to, to, you know, to train horses um, with a lot of quality. So, um, yes, it's very hard, uh, you know, when you're young to predict, uh, you know, how the dots will, will align going forward. But... I, I would have certainly had ambitious plans 15 years ago. So you said you're hugely ambitious, you're hugely driven. I mean, that's, that's self-evident, given the way things have turned out. But was that something that was always in you from a, a very young boy? Were you, com were you a very competitive child? 
can't really remember. Um, <laughs> I guess I was, yeah. Yeah, I guess I was. Um, always quite self-motivated and, and driven. Um, I, I've been very fortunate in life that I, I fell very quickly at an early age on a, a passion. And I've been able to turn that passion into a way of life you know, and, and, and work, basically. So I think when you're really passionate about something, um, it's much easier to give your all, you know, every day in, into what you do. So um, I know that not everyone's uh, as privileged to, to, to work and, and do what they love doing, you know, and I, I'm one of those lucky people that that is. So I guess, um, you know, the ambition and, uh, uh, you know, chasing success becomes part of that. But I'm very fortunate that it's actually about something that I love doing. So it has to be something that you, you want to do in order for you to be motivated. You couldn't just sit and, you know, grind yourself into the floor doing something that wasn't that interesting to you. Well, I'm lucky that I don't have to, and I guess <laughs> exactly. a lot of people do. You know, if he, everyone has to work in life. Yeah. Um, I don't think everyone is lucky enough to work in something that they generally have a passion about. No. Um, I do, so, you know, I, I consider myself fortunate from that angle. And where did the where did the spark come from? What what really instilled that passion in you? Um, as a kid, really, I, my mother's from a farming family, and she put us on ponies as kids, and we rode, and I I hunted, and I did a bit of pony club, um, and that was my connection to the equine world, I guess. But from that, I always loved horse racing. Mm -hmm. I loved going to the local point to point. Um, I loved the Grand National, you know, that sucked me in. Um, I was a huge jump racing fan as a as a kid. Channel Four racing on a Saturday, you know, I was a child who would probably up, be upset if I had to go somewhere on a Saturday and miss Channel Four racing. You know, yeah. I was a so I guess I was a fan. You know, the ponies got me going in the equine world, and then I became became a fan of horse racing. And and as a youngster, as young as I could remember, I wanted to be a jump jockey. Growing up, so I was um, probably much to my mother and father's horror. I was very tunnel vision. I couldn't wait to uh, escape school and um, start working in racing. What was the first time you, you rode a, a racehorse? When, what was your sort of first experience of this industry? Yeah, so we grew up very close to Kingston Blount point-to-point -point uh -huh. course and um, Allen and Lawney Hill, Lawney Hill, um, training Aston Rowan, two miles down the road from where we were living and um, weekends and, and Easter holidays as a maybe 13-year-old, 14-year-old going into Allen and Lawney's yard, mucking out, and riding a few point-to-pointers would have been my first exposure, I guess. And uh, they're people who, who are you know, tremendous to, to ground you, I would guess. Very much so. Proper people, pro proper ho horse, horse people. And, um, you know, I was green as grass, of course. I've got no, no horse racing in my family. And, um, but it was a great introduction for me. And what were your parents thinking at the time? I mean, were they... Tr were they... <laughs> you're smiling. <laughs> were they encouraging you or were they sort of trying to steer you in a different direction? Well, I'm smiling because I'm a parent now and I have to think what I would do when the time comes that, that our kids start choosing their path in life. And um, all I can say is that I can't remember ever any doubt from mum and dad about what I wanted to do. And I've got no doubt they must have had huge doubt but all, all I remember is encouragement. That's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so on you went. When did you land at Josh Giffords? So I 
here. So I was in um, had a short spell in America, or more than a short spell. I had two and a half years in America from age 15 to 17 because my father's business took him to mm -hmm. California. So I finished high school in America and I came back from America and I worked 15 months for Ian and Toki Mackay. And I had my first summer in Newmarket, aged 18, working for Michael Jarvis as a summer job. But I still had the ambition to be a jump jockey. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to five jumps trainers asking to, you know, with ambition to be a conditional jockey. And the only one who wrote back to me was Josh Gifford. And I drove down the next day and, and, and met with him and uh, took the bags down about two days later and started work that Monday. Uh, he was sort of coming toward the closing stages of what had been an amazing training career at that point. Just give me an idea of what it was like at Finden then, you know, what the people were like, mm. what the atmosphere was like. It always strikes me that you think of them as very happy days. A hundred percent, and I don't think I'll go back and change that for the world, really. I sort of call them my university years. I think I was there from age 18 to 21, three years. Um, fantastic time, great people, got, met lifelong friends. Josh was a fantastic man to work for, um, very old-fashioned, um, demanded a lot. You know, you had to work hard. Very fair man, though, as well. Um, I'd like, like to hear you enjoying yourself as well, and I thought it was a great, um, not only a, a proper in, uh, introduction to the industry, but um, a place where you could learn proper life skills. And um, Josh, you know, He's just a great man. I have very fond memories of working for him. And um, as I say, I've got lifelong friends from Finden, you know, who I'm still close to now. Yeah, Leighton Aspel, Owen Burrows, Philip Hyde, all there at the same time as you. Am I right in thinking you were quite keen to make an impression on the, on the governor in those days? <laughs> Not quite sure what you're referring to, but um, I'm sure I was. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think back then, even uh, fully aware that first impressions are, are what stick and... Um, You know, when you're trying to succeed, you're, you're trying to make an impression on anyone, I guess. Was it, was it not you that stayed behind to do a bit of late evening stables one day? Have I, have I got that right? And he, he, he came round and asked you why you weren't down the pub with all the others. I think I know the story you're referring to, and it's probably a bit too long to tell on the show. It might not be a Sunday morning story either, <laughs> Nick, but um, no. Yeah, as I say, Josh, Josh ta taught you life skills. You know, he, 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 he demanded a lot. He expected you to work hard. But he liked, actually, to see you play hard as well. And, um, you know, he loved the banter with the, with the boys and girls. And it was, uh, being, it was like being part of a family. And um, I got very fond memories from, from there. And, uh, you know, I had a very undistinguished, uh, unsuccessful career as a, as a jump jockey. But um, I wouldn't trade those three years. Uh, do you think your career as a jump jockey could have, could have gone better but for different opportunities? Or were you someone who thought, well, those are my limitations and I kind of know what they are? Um, I think I probably could have done better. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily to do with where I was. But on reflection and, and being honest with myself, I, I probably didn't want it enough. Although it was my childhood ambition, I think... Um, I take my hat off to to those jump jockeys. You know, I think you've got to you've got to want it, and you've got to be a touch mad. And I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I loved it enough. And I never missed it once. Really? Hmm. And you didn't have quite that kind of daredevil. I don't think streak. so. I probably told myself I did at the time, but um, 
no. I mean, going into those fences surrounded by 20 others, you know, at 30 miles an hour or whatever. And I consider myself a horseman. And I remember Josh telling me I was very good on the schooling ground, a good schooling <laughs> jockey, and um, why it didn't quite click on my race course. Deep down, I probably knew. I probably thought, I'm not so sure about this. You have to have courage of a different kind, of course, to, to want to set up as a trainer. But in your, in your early 20s, did you just feel that you could just buccaneer your way through? Um, yeah, as I, as I said earlier, it's, it's very hard to... Um, um, it's very hard to see how the dots will align looking forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had a... a always a, an inner confidence that you know I would be able to succeed I think I was very fortunate to work for such a great man in Michael Jarvis mm. who took me on at a very young age age 21 put me straight in as, as his assistant and nurtured me along and I had 10 years with Michael and I guess my confidence grew that I had a future as a trainer at some point over those 10 years or at various points over those 10 years and um, you, you see opportunity along the way, and it's what you do with the opportunity. I think to a degree, yes, you have to be knowledgeable, you have to be hardworking, you have to pick up various skills along the way, but you have to also be an opportunist and um, take opportunities when they come your way. And I was very fortunate to, to have all that time with Michael and have enough time to be able to plan and, and have a vision, and also um, for Michael to be very open with me that at some point there'd be an opportunity for me there. We always talked when, when he was still with us uh, uh, of Michael as a, as a great trainer, as a man who thought deeply about the game, as someone who was an example, both as a trainer and as a man, to an awful lot of people in the sport. From your unique perspective, why do you think that was? So sorry, Nick. Just ask me the question again. Why do you think he was seen as a as an example, as a man and as a trainer? Well, there was no uh, falsities with Michael. What you saw is what you got. He was an incredibly um, first and foremost. He was a gentleman. You know, he was an incredibly nice man, um, uh, well mannered, um, hard working, easy to like, uh, great fun. You know, away from his professional side, you know, um, uh, a man you'd, you'd warm to quickly and, and love to spend time with. And uh, but Michael Jarvis as a trainer was exceptionally gifted, mm-hmm. very natural, um, you know, taught me, taught me a lot, uh, didn't tell you everything, you know, he, he expected you to use your eyes and your ears and observe and, and that's the way he trained. He, um, he was very sharp on the detail. Um, and uh, I guess it's something that I don't think you can learn quickly. So to be with someone like Michael Jarvis for 10 years, you learn, you learn over time, but he doesn't tell you everything. He expects you to listen and to watch. And um, so, you know, his, his um, CV tells you how successful he was, and when you spend time with him, you realise why he was so successful. So can you train just like he trained, or would actually that be impossible? I think it's impossible, because I think every single person trains a little bit differently. I think there's no uh, one set rules. I think you take your guidelines and you adapt things 
to suit uh, you know to suit the way you do things and you probably never stop adapting you know I probably train horses slightly differently this year to last year slightly differently last year to the year before it's a it's a hard uh, thing to do exactly the same every year because you're dealing with animals who are changing all the time presenting you with different challenges and I think that you take a, a model of training perhaps off someone maybe I took a model of training from Michael Jarvis because mm -hmm. that's really all I knew and over time you adapt slightly yourself and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong but um, it's very hard to take a blueprint and, and stick to it exactly. I mean do you do you look back now I and mean, you're still incredibly young you're still only 43? 43. 43 it's good age um, but they're big years of encounters you than they have to me but um, if, do you ever look back now over some of the early years of your training career and think, oh my God, what was I doing there? I could have done this, this and this and I could have made that horse that kind of a horse? A hundred percent. I probably look, look back this week and thought, oh, you, you know, it's a, it's a game that on a weekly basis you'll carry a regret with you because you're making multiple decisions on a daily basis about multiple horses and you're not going to get it right every time and I think it's the acceptance of a trainer knowing that you're not going to get it right every time that helps you um, improve I guess and um, I know you know I'll do something next week which will be the wrong decision or the wrong move hopefully only subtly but you can always look back and, and, and think I would have done it slightly differently because the only time we know if you're right or not is often in the result. Mm -hmm. Is in the race you choose, the distance, the way you you ride the horse, the you know, have you gone two weeks too early, you know, have you overcooked a horse? And at the time you're making the decisions that you believe are right, but only in the event of a horse running are you proved right or wrong. Yeah. So then there can be a lot of regret comes with the nature of what we do. But you can, you can wear that fairly readily, fairly easily, can you? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I can reflect, um, I reflect on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. I can look back to last year. Uh, I'm not going to tell you, but I could tell you, you know, what I did wrong and what I, what I did right. And um, I think if you can't do that as a racehorse trainer, then you'd be not being honest with yourself. You... You gave an interview to Marcus Townend in the Daily Mail in, in 2014 where you talked about the death of your brother, Chris, uh, in 2010. He was, he was murdered in 2010, uh, an horrific experience for, for everyone um, close to him. And you said that that had had a, clearly a, a massively profound impact on you and your family, as it, as it would, but also a, a similarly profound impact on the way you, you are as a trainer and the way that you... You operate your career. Tell me, tell me a little about about Chris, if you if you will. Yes, yeah, so um, yeah, a long time ago now, but um, no, Chris was my elder brother. He was eighteen months my elder, so we were mm -hmm. very close. You know, grew up together, went to school together, played sport together. Um, you know, very close uh, throughout our lives. And yes, he you know he was brutally murdered um, when he was age thirty-two. And um, I think most people in life go through emotional trauma to varying degrees. Mm. I think what my family went through when Chris was murdered, I wouldn't, 
wish on anyone. But uh, once something's happened in life, it's happened and you're not going to change it. And um, how we as a family dealt with it, I think I'll always be immensely proud, you know, how mum and dad uh, came through it and, and my sister. And of course it's uh, incredibly tough at the time and things get easier over time, that's very true. But it also gives you a perspective on life which is very real and I very quickly realised how delicate we were and if I'd coasted through life up until the age of 31 thinking I'd be here forever I quickly realised that that's not guaranteed and that um, I'm here today but I might be not be here tomorrow and it gives a very uh, clear perspective on on my life and um, I think uh, I would never u wish to use the death of my brother as motivation but I'm motivated to try to achieve what he didn't get a chance to achieve but I'm also um, but I also find strength from what we went through back then to deal with some of the challenges that life presents now and I, I think I'm not as afraid as I might be under certain circumstances knowing what we've come through in the past and, and thinking nothing can really be as bad as that. So out of, out of something so, so hideous, and there's no, there's no other word for it really, um, you find great strength almost, strength because it sounds as though your, your mum and dad very, very special people. You find great strength, you find courage of your convictions. Exactly that, I think. You know, it's a hard, uh, quite a hard thing to talk about and explain and to mm. get it right, but um, very quickly, almost within the first 24 hours, I knew I couldn't change what happened. And I think through um, the emotional trauma that everyone, not everyone, but that, that people go through in life, you either emerge from it stronger or weaker. And I was going to emerge from it stronger, and that didn't mean I wasn't going to suffer and grieve. But I think I came out of it stronger. And I think from, from what you've told me about your childhood and the way you grew up, and I, I think a lot of people would have backed you to, it, to emerge from it stronger as well, even though no one can, so few people can possibly imagine what you went through at the time. With each passing year and with each passing success, um, what, what drives you on? What spurs you on now? I'm not sure where to start. So I'd say so much, uh, Nick. You know, I think we're, um, we're an insecure breed as, uh, as trainers, you know, a racehorse trainer. I shouldn't think there's one out there who isn't a little bit insecure. Um, you know, the business is, is, is challenging. Um, and it's a public results business that we're in. So I guess what spurs me on is, the, is, is knowing that we've got to keep being successful to survive. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, we're not guaranteed to train 200 horses next year or the year after. You know, that will only come if we continue to be successful. 
Um, you know, we're presented with, uh, you know, countless problems almost on a daily basis um, and, uh, you know, key decisions and it's getting it right and getting results right and and I think what what, dri what drives me on is that I'm only 43 and yes, I've been training 11 years, but nothing's guaranteed. We're not guaranteed to be successful this year or next year or the year after. You know, it's, we, we, we've made um, super foundations to get through the next 20 years, but it's not guaranteed that we get through the next 20 years. You have to keep working hard. I think the moment that you sit still and you're happy with your lot, you know, you slide downhill very quickly. So, you know, we're always uh, thinking we have to improve. You know, we're, you know, the last couple of years we've been, I don't know, um, eighth, ninth, tenth in the trainer's table with us. Masses of room for improvement. You know, we want to, of course, you know, climb as high up that table as we, as we can. So, you know, I think the job is only fractionally done we're, you know we, we've, we've so much more to do if we if we stopped being driven now we'd fall off a cliff tomorrow and i suppose especially with flat racing especially in the uk where it sort of sits in this position where it's sort of reputation and heritage is at right angles to its existing commercial success relative to the rest of the world you're always trying to think well where are the next raft of owners coming from how much does that preoccupy you um Almost daily, yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's a it is a worry, um, and I think that we have to look long term. The whole industry has to look long term. I think often we're we're guilty of short term mm -hmm. decisions, and I'm very fortunate, and a lot of people are very fortunate that we've got this uh, great bank of owners invested in UK flat racing at the moment and again they're not guaranteed to be there tomorrow in five years ten years twenty years and um, without getting drawn too much into racing politics you know there's plenty of time for that later it, it's it's a concern um, that we're becoming a nursery to the international mm. racing community and the concern is that we're becoming a trading industry. And I've had so many of our better horses have been traded. And we understand why. But the danger is, is we wake up in 10 years and our racing is not as strong as it is now, as it was 30 years ago. And the danger in 20 years is that we wake up and our product isn't strong enough to trade. So, you know, we really have to do something now mm. to um, be able to retain our owners and our horses and keep our industry strong for years to come. And from your perspective, does it all boil down to what those races are worth, what you are running for? Is that is that the way you envisage it, or is it more complex than that? No, I think the, the, you know, the crux is prize money, and I think that it's the middle tier. I think that our group races compare favourably 
certainly with the rest of Europe, maybe not the rest of the world, but with mm. Ireland, France, our group races are, are comparable. Somewhat, yeah. Um, I think that our... Um, I don't necessarily think that the Class 6 horses should be racing for any more money, but I think the middle tier, your Class 5, your Class 4, your Class 3, has to be more tractable for the owners, and there has to be a better return for the majority of horses, and for the majority of horses that all trainers have, whether you're a large trainer, a small trainer, a middle trainer, everyone generally has horses in the middle tier and that's where the majority of our owners are invested in, and that's where there's got to be a slightly better return. But presumably you're talking about that because as horses, you're talking about horses who are upwardly mobile, working their way through those middle tiers, so they don't get taken out of the system, rather than horses that are just kind of making up the numbers, if you will. Well, I think you, you can take both, for example. So your upwardly mobile horse who's rated 87 and progressive, you know, there's got to be sufficient prize money for that horse to at least mm. pay for itself, which there isn't at the moment. And then for those horses that hover maybe in the 80s and are consistent and sound and win a race every year, hard to win two, yeah. get placed a few times and barely cover two months' training fees, that's got to be different as well. And, you know, it, it will... Um, it will, help, it will help us retain a lot of the, the owners, you know, because the, the racehorse owner is really the reason I'm here, you're here, all my staff are here. The racehorse owner is picking up racing's bill. And although it's widely understood that it's a hobby, I think it's, it's got to be a fairer hobby for them. Well, it's an ecosystem, isn't it? Yep. Where we're all co codependent. I mean, no one's very dependent on me, but uh, yes, you and I are dependent on the owners. We're also dependent on all the people who have a bet every day, which is a topic we're going to come on to a, 